Thank you so very much. It's great to be here. I was actually here in this service in 2014. We were making the move to start Thousand Oaks Bible Church, which of course has merged with Bethany. And it was a period of about three months prior to the start of Thousand Oaks Bible Church in January of 2015. So in that three months and the latter part of 2014, we were just sort of trying to get the spiritual barometer of the area. And so we were visiting local churches. It was the first time in my entire ministry life that I had time just to uh, go incognito and sit in the back and just watch how churches do church. And uh, we came on a Sunday and there were several of us and we sat right over there in the back and uh, we heard Chris Brunzeel preach. He was preaching like a man with his hair on fire. And I like that. That's why he has less hair now, I think. Yes. And Chris and I had already uh, talked. We'd already uh, gone out and shared a meal together. And so I thought, well, it would be good for us to go and uh, visit the Bridge Moore Park. And so we did. We had a wonderful time. And lo and behold, we have continued our friendship. And uh, now we're talking about the possibility of merging together as churches what a thought. And we are grateful to the Lord uh, for the combined service that we had last Sunday. And it was a wonderful time. It really was. I thought the rapture was about to happen. <laughs> and uh, it was wonderful for us to be together. Chris, thank you for your ministry of the Word. And uh, thank you for allowing us to get a sneak peek on how a guy ends three years a verse-by-verse study in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we are delighted to be here. My wife, Beth, thank you so much for praying for her. We got a good scan report uh, this past week uh, that the tumors are at bay via the chemotherapy. And uh, that's just a a life-lengthening process for which we thank God. And... And this is also an opportunity for us, delighted we are, to have our son Logan with us. Logan is uh, on the staff of the Tulsa University basketball program, and uh, he is leaving tomorrow to go back uh, from the summertime uh, to Tulsa so he can be involved with the basketball program there. And of course, if you want to watch the Tulsa University basketball program, you can on some of the ESPN networks. So uh, if you have that, and if you don't, shame on you, because you'll get to see Logan and the Tulsa University basketball program throughout the season. Also, Logan surprised a girlfriend of his, Bella, by coming back a little bit early here in the summertime, and it was a couple of weeks ago that we all scampered to the beach uh, in Malibu, and Logan proposed to his girlfriend, Bella. And uh, let's all pray that uh, she will continue to go through with it, (laughs) including Logan and his prayers for that very thing. So, uh, you know, it is wonderful for me to be here. And actually, uh, last Sunday night, 
I was asked to preach here in Moore Park at Grace Bible Church. And uh, usually on the fifth Sundays of any month, we have five churches that get together uh, from successive cities all around Ventura County, Fillmore, Moore Park, Grace Bible, Bethany in Thousand Oaks, in Camarillo with Pleasant Valley Bible Church, and in Oxnard with Faith Community Church. And those five churches get together on those fifth Sundays and all worship together. And I was preaching last Sunday night on our adoption in Christ, and Chris Brunziel was there, and Chris said to me after the service, since you're preaching for us next Sunday morning, would you preach that message? And I said, I'd be delighted to. I'm a little familiar with it now. And so I want to talk about our adoption in Christ. That's not something that's fairly common in terms of teaching in the ministry of the church, but I think it should be. When we normally think of the most important doctrine surrounding our salvation, we usually hear preachers and theologians proclaim God's justification of sinners. And it is quite true that the doctrine of justification is extremely important. In fact, massively critical is this doctrine of gospel truth regarding our salvation in Jesus Christ. Very, very important. But when it comes to the subject of our union with Christ in salvation and our abiding relationship with God, the doctrine of adoption is... According to J.I. Packer, for instance, just to quote one person, this doctrine of adoption is even a higher blessing and a Christian privilege for every believer than is even our justification. Now, those are uh, strong words. But listen to what Packer says in his classic book, Knowing God. How many of you have read the book, Knowing God? Okay, I see several hands. Very, very good, solid biblically-based theology of our knowledge of God and how to know Him. And this is what Packer says in his chapter 19 of that book, which is entitled Sons of God, about this matter of adoption. This is what he says. As justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it, rests on it, adoption included. This is what he's saying about justification, our being made right with God. But, Packer says, this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. The two ideas, that is justification and adoption, are distinct. And adoption is the more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. This free gift of acquittal and peace won for us at the cost of Calvary is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. 
Adoption, and Chris even alluded to this a moment ago, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. We do not fully fully feel the wonder of the passage from death to life which takes place in the new birth till we see it as a transition. Not simply out of condemnation, that's what justification brings us out of, condemnation, into acceptance, but out of bondage and destitution into the safety, certainty, and enjoyment of the family of God. Now that's adoption. Packer will even go so far as to say in this wonderful book, Knowing God, about our spiritual adoption in Christ. This is what he says. Listen carefully. The entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of it. Now that's a bold statement. The entirety of our Christian life has to be understood on the basis of our adoption into sonship. How is that so? Well, I want us to do a little Bible study in three Pauline passages. And the first place that I want us to go to see this is Ephesians chapter 1. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to see this incredibly important doctrine, the doctrine of adoption, adoption as the children of God. And Ephesians 1 talks about it. We're going to look at three portions of Scripture to practically understand the focus of our adoption in Christ. And I want you to see an emerging picture of our sonship or our adoption in Christ by virtue of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. By a Trinitarian working in our salvation to bring us into sonship, to bring us into the family of God. And the first point of three that I want you to see this morning, and if you've got a pen, it would be a good idea to write this down, because I want you to think about these things and understand our adoption in light of these three truths from these three passages that we're going to go over. And the first one is this. Maybe I'll even put it in a question form. What is the motivating basis behind our adoption in Christ? What is the motivating basis behind our adoption in Christ? Well, Ephesians 1 tells us what it is. And the answer, of course, is the Father's love. The Father's love. That's the motivating basis behind our adoption in Christ. Look at Ephesians 1 with me. This is that great section of verses 3 to 14 in Ephesians chapter 1. Of course, we can't through, go through all of that, but I hasten to say, believe it or not, that from verses 3 all the way to verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 1 in the Greek text in which Paul wrote, it's actually only one sentence. Now, aren't you glad I'm not going through it this morning? 
because if we go through it all, we'll be here until 9 o'clock tonight. Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to see the first couple of verses. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him. And when is that choosing occurring? Before the foundation of the world. We could say it like this, our being chosen in Christ, the predestining of God in our salvation happened when? It happened all the way over here. If I walked all the way over here to this wall, you would see beyond that wall eternity past. And as you see it in your mind, history is going in this direction, right? And beyond that wall is eternity future. And the bottom line is that when you and I were predestined to be in Jesus Christ, to have a relationship with Christ, it happened beyond the wall, as it were, in eternity past. God predestined those to whom He would set His love before the foundation of the world. That's what Paul is saying. And there's a purpose for it. That, for the purpose that, we should be holy and blameless before Him. In other words, there's never a time that God chooses someone to be in Christ that He does not in time make holy and blameless. Anybody encouraged about that? There there is no separation between God's choosing us to be in Christ and making us holy in Christ. And then this phrase in the latter part of verse 4, in love, probably no verse break, in love He, speaking of the Father, predestined us for what? Adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. The predestination of God was done through a motivating basis. And that motivating basis is none other than the love of the Father. Now, we know this. This is not foreign truth to us. We know it from the most oft-repeated, probably even the most oft-repeated verse that's quoted even by unbelievers, John 3.16, right? For God so what? He so loved the world that He gave us, us believers, His only begotten Son, so that we, the believing ones, would never perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. God so loved the world. And now we get a sneak peek as to when that love began. That love began, take the veil away from eternity past, before time began, pre-temporal time, before the foundation of the world, and the motivating basis behind our adoption in Christ is the love of God the Father. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons, sons and daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. And I'm so grateful that He purposed in His will to do that very thing. He was motivated by love. 
for God so loved the world. And this isn't the only place where God's love is seen as the motivating basis behind His salvation of us in Christ to adopt us as sons and daughters. Romans 5, 5 to 8. You might put that verse down as you write it. Romans 5, 5 to 8. Listen to this. God's love, there it is again, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was motivated upon the very basis of God's love. And did you notice what Romans 5 says? It's God's love even while we were yet sinners. Who other and what other than God and His love would crash through and love guilty, vile, wretched sinners like us? Only God would do that and only God could do that. It's the love of God. I don't think we talk enough about the love of God. I think we need to talk more about the love of God. And the love of God is said in Ephesians 1 to be so vast and so boundless and so qualitative because it actually characterizes God Himself. He crashed through time, motivated by love in pre-temporal existence, and He brought such love to the cross where Christ died for us so that that love could be shed abroad in our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is the love of God. One particular writer, David Garner, says it so well in his book, Sons in the Son. The motive for adopting sons flows from this divine love. God does not need the sons but He everlastingly loves them. From eternity past to eternity future by virtue of the promised and accomplished redemption through His own Son. He everlastingly loves this. This what? This wretched creation called you and me. And we need to talk not simply about the love of God, but who God saved. We were sinners, enemies of the cross. We didn't love God. We didn't want to follow God. And all of our testimonies could probably attest to the idea, especially those of you who might have been saved later in life, that there was no motivating factor in my own heart to love God. And the only love that I perceived was the love of self. And it was God Himself who desired to set His love upon us from eternity past, which was His motivating basis. In love, He predestined us for adoption. And when God rained down His love upon us, He desired to show us the kind of love that we don't possess 
and the kind of love with which we are unfamiliar. But for now in Christ, we love. We love God's love. We bask in God's love. If you're a Christian here this morning, and you have been loving the Lord for any length of time as a Christian, it's only because, First John says, God loved you first. That's the truth. Now, there might be someone who says, wait a minute. In my own experience of that love, I decided one day to love God. Oh, yes, that's true. But that decision on your part was brought to you by a gift from the Father. Salvation is a gift. The faith is a gift. The grace is a gift. The love is a gift. And it's a love directly given to you and me by the Father. And this kind of love shown to sinners is even taught to us here in Ephesians. Look over to Ephesians chapter 2. This is the love of God. Chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is not a pretty picture, folks. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the kind of sonship that we had before, right? The kind of sonship that we had before outside of Christ was a sonship with my fellow sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is a sad commentary, is it not? Notice the first word of verse 4. But, I love these holy buts of the Bible. But, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The kindness of God, even mentioned in verse 7, kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The love of God is superlative. And the love of God reached down in time because of the motivating basis of that love, the love of God before time, so that you and I, as wretched sinners, could understand the love of God in experience. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, you don't know anything about the love of God. You, you may assume that you do, but the Bible says until you come to the actual experience of that love and the experience of knowing that your sins are forgiven, the experience of knowing that all of the things that you've done to, to flout your fist in the face of God through being a son of disobedience has now been utterly and completely forgiven by the cross. And the love that you and I have is the very love that started before time began, not in our hearts, but in the heart of our Heavenly Father. What a love. You want to see some more references to this? Look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. This is not some isolated doctrine. 
This is, this is throughout the New Testament, this idea of the love of God for His people. Look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And then it says, And so we are. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And therefore, it's saying that they also did not know His love. Beloved, I love that term, verse 2 of chapter 3. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. And look at chapter 4 of 1 John, verse 9. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. How was it made manifest? That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. You know, in John chapter 15, Jesus is talking to His disciples. And He says there in John 15 verses 12 to 17, you should read it at your leisure. He says, No longer do I call you slaves. I now call you my friends. Now, there's a sense in which we are still slaves, slaves of God. Paul called himself a slave of Jesus Christ, right? So there is a sense in which we still have a slavery to our master, but it's not a slavish fear now to be continuing in sin. It's a release from that. It's a a burden lifted from us because of our sins forgiven. And now we have a kind of slavery to God that is a beautiful kind of slavery to our master. But he says it's actually going beyond the idea of slavery. It's going now to the idea that you and I are transcendent slaves because we are not just slaves. We are also friends. You know the writer to Hebrews also calls Jesus our elder brother. We have an elder brother who loves us. We have the Father who loves us. We have the Spirit who sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God, Romans 5. All the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, cast their love upon us so that you and I could bask as sons and daughters in such love. And we're friends, friends of Jesus Christ, our elder brother. This is, this is a love with which we're going to be worshiping the Father for all eternity. This is a love for which we're going to thank the Son forever and ever in eternity. This is the kind of love for which God, the Spirit, will be continuing to show us throughout everlasting time. This is the love of God. The origin of adoption itself, David Garner says, 
than lies in the pretemporal loving decree, the decree to predestine us to love, by love, for love, in love, when God the Father, in love, ordained lost sons of Adam to become his family through his own incarnate Son. There is no, listen to this, there is no biblical predestination outside biblical adoption. Adoption frames predestination within the love of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, you can't have predestination without adoption, and you can't have adoption without predestination. Now, I know people struggle over predestination. and There's legitimacy to the struggle because we're saying, I wasn't there. How could God love me in time past when I wasn't even there. Well, we're going to talk about that when we get to Romans 8 and we talk about our life in Adam or our life in Christ. But it is to say now, while some people trip and stumble over the doctrine of predestination, you and I say, hallelujah, God shed His love there first on us in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. It's the motivating basis behind what the Father is doing for us, even working on our behalf before time began, before the foundation of the world. If anybody stumbles on something like that, the re-examination of these texts show us that I want God to love me from eternity past through eternity present, throughout all eternity future, because not I'm worth it, I need it. I have great need for God's love. And it's not just the motivating basis, the love of the Father. There's another person within the triune Godhead who has also done something, and his name is God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the second point of the morning There's a major requirement of my adoption in Christ. There's a major requirement. Not just the motivating basis of the love of God the Father, but there is also a major requirement for this adoption to take place. And you know what it is? Our redemption in Christ. That's the major requirement. That's what God required. I mean, it's not enough... For God the Father to say, I want to love these sinful creatures in time, before time. I want to love them. I want to shed abroad my heart of love toward them, to be favorably disposed toward them. There has to be something that occurs in that to happen, for that to happen. And what is that? Well, because I'm a sinner. Because I'm wretched, I'm blind, I'm I'm naked, I'm impure, I'm wicked and unrighteous. Because of that, there is now a barrier between myself and the Father. There's a sin issue that has to be dealt with. You see, save Christ Himself, there is not one single person who comes out of the womb sinlessly. Every single person who is born of woman is a sinner. Now, that's not a popular thing to say. That's not a popular thing to teach. But the Bible expresses that you and I, coming right out of the womb, even Job says, as the sparks fly upward, so the sinfulness of man flies upward. The sinfulness of man is indisputable. 
If you even have a little kid, and I saw when those kids came out of the womb, my own eight children, how sinful they really were. I mean, even these cute, cuddly little kids, you just want to kiss those, those kissable cheeks. You, you want to love them. You would even die for them. You would sacrifice for them because of this great love that you have for them. And how do they repay you? They repay you with, I want milk. I want food. I want you to meet all my needs. I want you to focus on me, not you. And all we can do after we give them the milk and the food is to deal with the consequences afterward. And yet we love them. And yet there's a problem. And the problem is that every single child who comes out of that womb learns from the very nature of what it is to be a sinner how to perfect such sin. And we work at it. And we do it. And we do it habitually. And we do it at times, it seems, effortlessly. And we do it with a kind of uh, prideful smug that we can do it and that we will do it and that no one can tell us what we will or won't be able to do. Is that not so? I mean, that, that's the nature of fallen man. We just read about it in Ephesians chapter 2. Where we're sons of disobedience. We're proud. We're arrogant. This is not a pretty picture, but it is a realistic one. And the Bible says that in order for us to be reconciled to God, in order for us to be redeemed, you know what redemption is. Redemption is a buyback from the slave market of sin. That's what it is. They had these massive marketplaces. We call them malls now. They, they would have marketplaces right in the city square, right in the most prominent place of the city. And you would go there and you would do your bidding. Uh, you would say, how much for this? How much for that? And they would give you a price. And if you thought that was reasonable, then you would pay that price. And you would have produce. You would be able to feed your family. You'd be able to clothe your family. You'd be able in the marketplace of produce and commerce, the, the affinity, the ability, the opportunity uh, to keep yourself alive. This is normal. And out of that, Paul borrows the idea that we are in the marketplace of sin. We traffic in sin. We, we barter with God, as it were. If you'll let me do this, then I'll do this. And if you don't let me, I'm going to be angry. And if you don't let me do what I want to do, I'm going to be angry at you. And I'm going to be angry at others. And I'll do what I want. And no one's going to tell me what to do. And all of this kind of bartering. Is a bartering from sin. And this slave market of sin has caused us to be wretched and naked and blind and miserable and we don't know the solution. We don't have the answer. And God in His great love has given us the answer by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, He not being sinful Himself. And He died on a cross for sinners like you and like me so that we could be purchased. Purchased by the Father at the expense of His Son, the expense going so far as to include even the death of Jesus Christ. And in His death, because of the perfection of His life 
and the violent sacrificial, sacrificial nature of that death, He died for sinners like us so that we could be redeemed, purchased, and that God the Father could be satisfied so that we could be released from the sin debt, so that we could be purchased out of the slave market of sin so that you and I could see this pre-temporal love of the Father in experience, in reality, in truth, because of what Jesus Christ did for us. He died on our behalf. He died in our stead. He died in my place. So that I could be adopted as a son or daughter in Him. That's the truth. You say... Where does such truth be taught? Galatians chapter 4. Look at it with me. Galatians chapter 4. If you see in Galatians chapter 3, before you get to chapter 4, there is a problem, and I just described it. It was the sin of our lives. It was our lifelong of sinning. We were disobedient to the law of God. We did not do what God required. And as a result, according to chapter 3, verse 22, the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. We're, we're slaves to sin. Verse 23, now before faith came, or before Christ came, according to verse 24, the law was our guardian. It was our schoolmaster. You know that schoolmarm that, that's got the little, uh, the little ruler in her hand? And when you don't do what the school marm tells you to do, she might come up to your desk and what? She might wrap your knuckles. And what the law was, was like the school marm who wraps, wraps the spiritual knuckles of our hand because of our disobedience. And the law continues to remind us of all of the sin of, of our life. All of our bad choices, all of our pride, all of our evil. And it reminds us, reminds us of this continually. The law shows us our sin. And he says, that's who you are. And then he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, he, he's no different from a slave. You see, if you have a slave in the home, that's a, a worker in the home, and you've got the son of the father who owns the home, and they're in the home together, when he's still a child, he, he's no different. Verse 2, but he's under guardians and managers. Uh, that's, that's the law. Uh, we're under the law uh, until we're released from the date set by the Father. Verse 3, in the same way we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That just means you and I are under the principles of our flesh, of the world, of the law. We don't want to follow the law. You know what happens when you are on this wonderful walk on a Sunday afternoon just before the sun goes down? And it's this beautiful picture, especially here in Southern California. It's maybe 70 degrees in the fall, and you're walking along this wonderful path, this sidewalk that's been created by our city officials, and we're walking along maybe with a loved one or maybe by yourself, and you're, you're walking along, and you see that now we don't have to do all kinds of drought-resistant uh, landscaping, right? Well, we can have water again, we can uh, water this lawn, and there's this green, luscious meadow of a lawn 
that's to the right of that sidewalk and you're walking along and you see how meticulous this lawn is. You see some flowers that have been planted just beyond the hedge of that lawn and you see this green luscious meadow of a lawn and you're walking by and then you see this sign that's posted on the corner of that person's property and that sign says what? Do not walk on the lawn. Do not step on the lawn. And what do you want to do? You just want to stomp on that grass. Why? Because it says not to. And see, that's, that's our hearts. That's who we are. In our hearts, before Christ came into our life, we want to stomp on the grass. We want to, we want to say, if there's a sign that says don't do it, I want to do it because the sign says don't do it. And the law is that sign. And the law says you have to be perfectly obedient to God in every way without a slip up, without one disobedient act forever for your entire life. And you and I say, can't be done. Can't be done. I sinned as that little baby when I was screaming for my mama's milk. And I've perfected the art of my sinning ever since. And I do what I want, and I go where I want, and I will disobey if I want. And if the sign says, don't step on the grass, I will because I can. Now, if I were arrested because I stomped all over that grass, and I was hauled to court and I hired the best attorney, I would want to say, well, but there were some mitigating factors. And whatever you tried to prove in court, and the court determined that this was an open and shut case, and that you were to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law, you would say, it's unfair. It's only stomping on the grass, and I only did it once. There's no pattern. And I didn't have my glasses on. I didn't quite see everything that the sign said. And all of these mitigating factors will be dismissed by the judge. And he says, you're guilty and you will pay the penalty. And we're going to say, in our whole life long, it's unfair. It's unfair. And yet, the law also comes, and when it shows us our wickedness, when God turns our heart to see the reality of such wickedness, we say, It actually is fair. I actually am deserving of death because I violated God's law the whole of my life and I need salvation. And God the Father says, I've provided it for you exclusively in Jesus Christ. What's your response? And here's what I do. I run to Christ. I run to Him. And I get on my knees and I, I cast all my hope, all my cares, all my dreams, all my forevers into his hands. And I say, please forgive me. And you know that's the precise picture here in chapter 4. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Who was the sender of the son? Who took the initiative? 
God. God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, and He perfectly kept such law, and it was for the purpose to redeem those who were under the law. The very purpose of God sending the Son was so that He might be born of woman, born of Mary, under the law's demands to which He perfectly kept. He was the only one who could and did and we cannot for the fact that He was coming to redeem those who were under the law, that's us, so that we might receive what? Adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, and heir through God. Oh, I wish we had time to talk about the inheritance. I wish we had time to talk about it. All the booty. All the, all the pot at the end of the rainbow. All the riches. It's ours. And the fullness of our experience of those riches will be an eternity future. And you know what? I'm out of time. <laughs> the motivating basis? God's love. The, the requirement, what kind of requirement? The absolute major requirement. And thirdly and finally, let's call it the manifest destiny of my adoption in Christ. The manifest destiny. You know, God has not only covered the beginning before time began in love, He's not only covered this life, my redemption in Christ, He's also covered my future, and it's because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at Romans chapter 8, and I'll go really, really fast. Really, really fast. I know you guys have to sort of pack up and do this again next Lord's Day. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is another passage on adoption. Verse 12, Romans eight twelve. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, if you're a non-Christian, you live according to the flesh. That's your life. That's your life pattern. That's what you do every step of the way. And if you do that, you will die. But if by the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, the major requirement being His redemption of you, and if the actual motivating basis was the Father's love, then the manifest destiny of our lives is to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and we are conformed to Christ's image by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You want to ask me what is the manifest destiny of my adoption? It's the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Because as soon as I'm in Christ, as soon as I'm saved, as soon as I'm walking in the fellowship of Jesus Christ and the Father, the Holy Spirit begins His work of sanctification so that you and I are made progressively just like Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit leads us. You see, the non-Christian is the person, according to verse 13, who's living according to the flesh. The person who is led by the Holy Spirit, he becomes the Son of God. 
Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, to fall back into your non-Christian life, your slavery to sin, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God. And notice this, wonderfully so, fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Yes, that means this life is going to be a life of suffering. Yes, that means that this life is going to be a life for which you and I, as we're trudging along in the Christian life, we're going to be hit with all kinds of challenges and trials and tests. And it's going to make that leadership of the Holy Spirit so much more important to us, right? And and what the Holy Spirit does, according to the rest of Romans 8, is that He groans in intercessory prayers for us to keep us going. And we ourselves, according to verse 23, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the now, and we're working toward the not yet that we have not yet received. And we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, as the Spirit Himself does. And it's the redemption of our bodies. It's the whole of our adoption. I mean, you and I are sons and daughters right now, and sometimes we don't always really look like it. I mean, we look like sometimes misfits, right? And what the Holy Spirit is doing is He's moving us inexorably and sometimes so much more slowly than we can think, but He moves us inexorably forward and we take step by step by step and sometimes maybe there's a step back and sometimes two or three and then maybe there's four forward and six back And yet we continue to walk and progress in the Christian life because our sonship will mean that one day, believe it or not, you and I will look just like Jesus Christ. You say, I don't believe that because I've got so far to go. Believe it, my friends, because the Word of God says it. Verse 29 of that chapter, Romans 8, For those whom He foreknew, He predestined, Remember that predestining, eternity past, on the other side of that wall, going as far as the eye can see and more, and then through time, and then the leadership of the Holy Spirit through this predestining work conforms me to the image of His Son. Wow! This is is more than I could have ever hoped. This is more than I could have ever been given. This is wonderful. The Father's love before time began, the Son's redemption in time, and the Spirit's leadership through time and beyond so that you and I, by the Holy Spirit's power, the very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, I might add, is the very power that causes us to keep going. That's why you never give up. That's why you don't throw in the towel. That's why you don't say, it's enough, I can't do it. Enough, I cannot go on. You go on because the Holy Spirit urges you and moves you and challenges you and remakes you progressively into the very image of Jesus Christ, God's Son. This is is God's will. This is God's way. And the leadership of the Holy Spirit is all about it. Because the Son is at the right hand of the, the Father. And the Son said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in my stead, in my place, as the paraclete, as the one who's coming alongside these believers, He is going to supernaturally include all that it's going to take, all that it's going to need for you and for me 
to be progressively conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And it will happen. And it must happen. And by God's grace, you and I, as the cooperating agents in such a conformity, will be the better, will be the richer, will be the blessed all the way through. And you know what that does? It makes us praise God in eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because all of the new vistas and new ways in eternity for which we will praise God for what the Trinity has done in the here and now. Anybody excited about this? Anybody see the reality of this? If you're not a Christian here today, you can have this in your life even today. Even today. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, this is a truth. This is the truth of the predestining, adopting, sanctifying work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the truth of how you have determined by your purpose and will and decree to grant us by your love the redemption that we have in Christ and the leadership of the Spirit that conforms us to the image of Christ. Thank you for Ephesians 1. Thank you for Galatians 4. Thank you for Romans 8. And we ask, Lord, let us now sing praises. And let us even, as we tear down, to do it to the glory of God. Because you have destined us to be the children of God. And so we are. We praise you. And we will praise you for all eternity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.